Welcome to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This is a podcast where we explore how the best B2B sales leaders make the complex simple, drive relationships and revenue, and generally elevate the sales profession. In this podcast, we're bringing together sales experts, thought leaders, top account executives, buyers, industry insiders, all to share their experiences and best practices for navigating the complex sales cycle. So whether you're a seasoned sales professional, a sales leader, or just starting out, you're going to find practical insights and actionable advice that you can apply to your own sales journey. Plus, we have a bit of fun. Today on the show, we have Bob Apollo. Bob is a legend in the world of sales. He's CEO at Inflection Point, and they are UK-based B2B sales improvement specialist. They're really helping organizations design and implement highly effective customer acquisition systems. He does it based on a combination of winning habits, processes, and latest industry best practices. Uh, Bob is a frequent contributor to the Membrane blog, an absolute, like I said, legend in the world of sales, and we are so excited to have him on the show today. All right, everybody. Welcome to the art and science of complex sales. I'm so privileged today to be with Bob Apollo, who is the CEO and founder of Inflection Point, has been a great partner of Membrane for years and really a stalwart in the sales industry in terms of sharing his wisdom and knowledge relative to uh, sales and how we operate. So welcome, Bob. I'm very pleased to be here, Paul. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. I've loved all of our conversations in the past, so I figure it was high time that we should record one and let other people in on it. Let's get started really quickly. And one of the things that I would love to know, just to set the stage, and I generally do this with with all of the listeners, is how do you define sales? Uh, It's a really good question, and I bet you've had a variety of answers. So Here's the way that I look at it. And of course, we're thinking about complex B2B selling, yeah, rather than, let's say, uh, retail consumer selling. Yes. So uh, I think it's about identifying and engaging customers who have issues that we're really good at solving, helping them to address those issues, and making sure that the customer gets the outcomes they're looking for. So in other words, the sales process doesn't stop with taking the order, only really finishes when the buyer's journey is complete and the buyer looks back and thinks it's been a success. Well, tell me about that because that's something that and you probably find debate on that when you go in and, I mean, the question is, do you find debate on that when you go into to companies and say, hey, you know what? The sale doesn't stop until until somebody's completely happy. Right. Uh, yeah, I think there are different mindsets. There are more conventional mindsets where the primary purpose is very simply to get the order, almost regardless of whether uh, what you're selling is going to be useful to the customer. I, you know, refuse to align with that sort of thinking. I do think there's been a progressive movement towards uh, uh, more of a customer-centric perspective on this. It's a work in progress, but, you know, honestly, it's almost a self-qualifier for the sort of clients I choose to work with, because if there isn't a sort of underlying belief that it's the customer's success that matters, 
then we're probably not going to be very well aligned in other respects either. So how do you, how then does the, uh, and I'm sorry to dive a little bit on this, but I think it's, it's really important. So when we're, when we're looking at a, a salesperson and a general, let's say a, in a B2B complex sale, yeah. how do you recommend that that become actualized for somebody? Say we have, we're coming in, we're, you know, the buying phase, somebody buys and we have the implementation phase. Yeah. Uh, there's other people that are a part of that. And then we have the ongoing customer satisfaction part mm-hmm. of that. How does a salesperson in your view touch point at each of those right. at each of those areas? I don't think it necessarily requires that the salesperson is the primary contact right the way throughout the cycle. Mm-hmm. But what I think it does depend on, and by the way, I think this makes people better salespeople anyway, is to start with an understanding of what the customer would regard as a successful outcome mm-hmm. and working backwards from there. Now, you might, and you probably should, choose to engage your colleagues to support you. You might pass over prime responsibility to, let's say, the customer success function as part of that journey towards making sure the customer achieves the outcome they're looking for. But I think if you don't understand as a salesperson from a relatively early part in the sale, what the customer would regard as a successful outcome, I, I think you're going to struggle. You'll be sort of boxed back into the product uh, selling uh, mentality. I, I think in complex B2B sales, the very traditional I've got a product to sell mentality is entirely inadequate to you know today's customer buyer expectations. It's actually how we operate as well in terms of membrane and what we do. But I love how you divide that because it doesn't, I think setting the expectations at the be, the very beginning that that a salesperson, you know, our job is to understand not just what you want as a product, but what you want as an outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to to walk alongside. Now, I have seen organizations and you probably have too that, that completely blow this up simply by the fact that they are the way they're structured, mm. right? Let's just say in general, in the software space, a lot of times people think that uh, they can they can make up for that lack of relationship with an increase in automation or an increase in software. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you seen that going in some of your clients? Uh, well, I tend not to work with those sort of organizations <laughs> with that sort of mindset. Yeah. But my... Um, my feedback would be not very well. I have from time to time engaged or attempted to engage organizations who have a very product-centric sales mentality. I've tried to persuade them, if I can, that you know that's really a concept whose time has gone. So it doesn't happen very often in my experience. I suspect it's more common in the world outside. But, you know, candidly, life is too short to have to work with people and organizations who aren't uh, well aligned in in terms of your mindset. And I think that applies to selling as well. You you will be a much more effective salesperson, a much more effective sales organization if you consciously look for and target people and organizations who've got issues that you're really good at addressing rather than thinking of every 
person and every organization out there as a equivalent, you know, priority target. And that's simply, again, I think in complex, we call these things complex B2B sales, don't we? But but the reality, I think, is they also reflect a complexity in the buying journey. I'm always amused when people spout these statistics that, are, you know, every buyer is X percent of the way through their uh, buying journey before they want to speak to a salesperson. And if you unpick it, that concept's really nonsense. So if, let me speculate, the customer is somebody who's looking to buy something again that they bought before. Maybe it's a raw material for a production line or what have you. So it is inevitable they will buy, and they're following a very well-trodden and predictable buying process. Well, I can well understand why that sort of customer might say, I don't want to engage with a salesperson until I need to, maybe not at all. And I think that's well and good. But I, I think at the other end of the scale, you've got maybe an organization that's trying to follow some sort of change or transformation, trying to do something that they haven't done before. Maybe they're not even sure that taking action is the right thing to do, but they know that they need to find out more. And, and there you've, you've got a, a discretionary purchase, might never happen, and you've got it, uh, an unfamiliar buying process because they haven't really tried to do it before. Uh, I think it's entirely reasonable to expect, and if you position yourself as an educator, not as a salesperson, to want and expect to be able to engage with that sort of buyer far earlier in the their buying journey than those uh, stupid average statistics might uh, imply. I actually had a conversation this morning. Uh, it was it was a fascinating conversation, but it was around exactly that topic, which is essentially everybody has uh, different you know letters for their sales processes and the buyer journey, and we yeah. we call ours vibe, right? Vision, impacts, barriers, mm -hmm. execution. When we engage people, and I think this is in general what you're saying, when when you are looking at at companies that already know exactly what they're you know, they know their vision, that's all planned. They know what they're trying to achieve, yep. that's all planned. That's great. And all they're trying to do is figure out a way to execute. Then I, I do, I completely agree with you on those statistics, which is they are mainly down that uh, buyer's journey, right? And they're probably searching online for, especially being yeah. in the software industry. They, they know what they're looking for. Online. Yeah. They know how to, uh, they know what decision criteria they're going to apply. They know what, steps they have to follow in the process to execute. That's a very, very different scenario from one where it's an unfamiliar change. And as salespeople, we really need to recognize that and adapt our behavior accordingly. Now, it might well be that in some situations, not all, I think, a customer sees themselves as being on a inevitable and well charted buying process and it might be that because of our experience with uh, other organizations facing similar circumstances that we can present a different pattern to them we can disrupt or attempt to disrupt the pattern 
But it's not something we can achieve every time under those circumstances. And the, we both have to be skillful at it. And the potential buyer needs to be receptive to the idea that there might be a different and better way. Mm -hmm. but, but I think one thing that we're back to the sort of product or even solution selling thing, if we primarily train our salespeople to deliver the perfect product pitch, it almost goes against equipping them to have the right sort of conversations to deal with uh, abstract, ambiguous, uh, I need help type of buying process, you know, and the quality of the conversation. I've actually come to really hate this concept of putting salespeople through an academy where they have to be examined on their pitch perfect, their word perfect pitch, whether it's a company pitch or a product pitch, because it completely negates what's really important about any any conversation, and that's the interaction and the adaption. That is one of the things that I've found over my career, right, is when, and I said the only reason to create a pitch or to create a script, mm -hmm. I would always say... I think the exercise of it is is great in training, right? But you need to be able to forget it. You need to be able to go and be you within. It's right. The questions you ask and your curiosity are more important than than a perfect word. Right. And that actually freed me. It freed me yeah. so much when I got into sales. It was uh, it was amazing. Then I could talk to people, and I found actually, and I studied like I did a sales and service business. We studied all of our conversations, all of our sales cycles and everything. And what we found is the people that could have the best conversations for the people that had the most opportunity that, that won. And it wasn't about saying exactly the right things. Oh, good grief. No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Eisenhower said it, uh, something along the lines of the plan is nothing, but planning is everything. A Prussian general century and a half ago said no plan of action survives first contact with the enemy. And you might extrapolate that to say no careful plan about an account plan, an opportunity plan, a conversation plan survives completely intact from the first real conversation. But nevertheless, the act of preparation puts you in a far better position to you know, react to the uh, what 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 you learn. The key the key thing is not to think of the plan as something that always has to be religiously followed, uh, rigidly followed rather, but as something that prepares you to be able to cope with however the conversation goes. Let's talk about that a little bit more, which is which is that act of planning, right? Yeah. Um, I think we're established. We both believe that the conversation is is the critical. The critical piece in the sale that our ability to have that is is yeah. a critical piece in a sale and especially in a complex b2b sale now give myself the best opportunity to be effective in that how do i go about planning for that conversation well i i, I think there are probably five layers so the first layer happens before the conversation itself starts and that's you know really having a clear sense of what you wish to accomplish and doing your research and it's not just a matter of doing your research into the person you're meeting uh, or the people you're meeting into the company they work for, but also being familiar with how your organization has successfully worked 
with other uh, people and other organizations in similar circumstances. But I think it's proper and appropriate to have some sort of goal. Why, you know, why do I want to have this conversation? How would I think of it as a success? And I, I think this becomes, by the way, particularly important if you're not the only one from your company that's in the conversation. Because if you go in, let's say, with a colleague, maybe you're a salesperson with a pre-sales engineer and so on, if they don't know what you're trying to accomplish, if they don't know the areas you'd like to focus on, and actually perhaps even more important, if they don't know the areas you want to avoid, the whole thing can just run away in front of you. So that's the start. Yeah, you go into it. And by the way, this is not, you know, extensive chapter and verse. It's it's just spending a few minutes actually preparing and thinking about what do I want to accomplish and why. Can I ask so, you a can I ask you a quick question on that? Sure. I'm just interested in your experience on this, but who are the biggest offenders? And when you go in and you teach it, who are the biggest offenders generally? Is it the people that just came on? Is it the people that have been there for you know 24 years? Who are the biggest offenders of not doing this type of prep? <laughs> well, it, 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 if it's 24 years experience of doing the same thing every year, <laughs> then sometimes it's the apparently longer standing members that have a problem. Now, I don't want to tar everybody who's had a long and successful career with the same brush, because for many of them, it might have been 24 years, and each year's contributed uh, something new. So, so I think the offenders are people who honestly believe they've got the winning formula, they know it all, you know, they may or may not have been successful. It's quite possible they have been successful, but they're just sort of a bit blind to the idea that the world might move on, that they might need to adapt, uh, et cetera. And, you know, when I talk to clients um, about talents they ought to look for when hiring, one of the most important things is to look for people who uh, see themselves personally as being on a learning path. They're curious. You know, they'll listen to your podcasts and other podcasts. They'll consume sales books. They'll talk to their colleagues. They never get to the point where they uh, believe or behave as if they know it all. Yeah, that's that's something that's um, and it, I set it up as kind of a as a loaded question, right? Because I, I agree with you completely. It's it's that when you start to that that fundamental idea that when you feel like you found the successful formula and you're on rinse and repeat, that's never the case, right? You never are. Every sales right. situation, while it may be similar, is different. And it's the people that, as you just said, the people that are learners and that have that habit, like right. that's what I found, that have the habit. They, they do it regardless of if they could do it in their sleep or not. That do that prep. Anyways, sorry to interrupt. I was just I was just really interested in you your, know, uh, and, and you know the traits of confidence and humility can go together, and in fact, if they do go together, they're very powerful. That's a great so, statement. We've we've set the scene, and now we're engaged in a first part of our conversation with the customer, and that's where we need to not dive straight in. Company pitch, product pitch, demo, what have you. But to simply level set for just a few minutes with the customer as to what 
the mutually agreed purpose of the conversation is. What do we each want to accomplish? What would make the time we're about to invest worthwhile? What's you know the key things we must accomplish? And um, what does the agenda look like? Now, by, by the way, there's another thing in this setting of the scene that I've observed is really powerful. And it's certainly something I see all the time in top performing salespeople. But you can only do it if you've got the customer to acknowledge and agree what they want out of the conversation. And that is to establish, you know, you hear it called various things. Uh, I think the concept dates back to Sandler, um, it, it sort of concept of a, a provisional next step or a conditional agreement. And it is having understood what the customer wants to accomplish, then seeking their agreement that if we do accomplish that, that we agree not at the very end of the conversation, but actually at a very early part of the conversation, conditionally, that if those conditions are met, then here's the next step in the process. Uh, it's incredibly powerful, not least of which, because it kind of flushes out if the customer's you know, just there for the ride and hasn't got... Um, an intention of under any circumstances taking the conversation further. It's better to know that earlier than at the end. Yeah. I've seen people do that elegantly and I have seen people do <laughs> any tips oh, and tricks on it, that it, because it, it, I've it, seen both sides of that. It, right? it requires practice. It requires also really using natural language. If it comes across as being forced, or if it comes across as you trying to strong arm the customer, it almost always will end in failure. There's a sort of humanity that's required and an appreciation of, you know, the sort of way in which the customer wants to be uh, addressed. Uh, and it definitely needs natural language. It needs to come, uh, perhaps almost of anything, in the whole conversation, that's one bit that really needs to come across that you're not just trotting out a line that you've practiced, but you know it's a real engaged part of the conversation. Yeah, I use. Uh, I think everybody uses. You know, everybody absolutely uses their own colloquialisms and their their own language and all this stuff. I, the question I ask a lot, which has helped me in that regard, is simply, "Does that make sense?" Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it just that, and. I went from I went from when I say the horrible side of this, I, I did that early in my career to to terrible effect, right? To to almost uh, to incredibly detrimental people running away from me type effect at trade shows. So uh, I have one story where I I was the uh, sales development rep on on an account, and my account executive was there with me. And there was one lady that we just could never, we could absolutely never pin down uh, on next steps. And so I just made it my mission. I was going to, I was going to tell this, tell her what we were going to do. Right. And so if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, if we do this, well, then, then you're going to commit to this, that, that, right. She's like, and she just looked at me and was just like shaking her head. And, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> and it was horrible. It was horrible. I I'd never felt so. You say that really well, which yeah. is you just need to make it a natural, as well as the agenda. It's just a natural 
we talk and, it through. And saying, let's agree that we will, is actually probably less helpful than saying something like, well, so if we do that, would it make sense that we yeah. dot, dot, dot as our next step? All right? You're not trying to strong arm them. You're not. And I, I think actually in, in Sandler, the word contract might have come in. And it isn't really a contract. It's just a comfortable agreement between two or multiple people about what makes sense if certain conditions are successfully achieved. So anyway, that we're now engaged in the in the in the let's say in the body of the conversation. We've got we're we've satisfactorily achieved a mutual agreement about what would make sense to do if the rest of the meeting proves a success. So and I, I've done this very deliberately. I think there's a bit too much of an emphasis on preparing for the questions you want to ask the customer. You know, it's almost a natural or logical part of um, discovery. Mm -hmm. But I think what that ignores is that discovery is a two-way street. They're learning about you and you're learning about them. And if you bias it too much towards your interests, you know, let me ask you another, yet another poorly chosen question that will allow me to qualify you. Again, particularly if you don't do it with skill, uh, with finesse, it, it, it could be terrible. So actually what I encourage people to do is first think about what do I want to teach the customer? You know, what insights might I share with them? And this is based on my uh, simple but effective research into our experiences with similar people in similar organizations facing similar circumstances. And it's quite challenger-esque in a way. You know, first teach and then seek to learn because you've earned the right then. You've, uh, you know, there's been an exchange of value. And and I think that element's, um, you know, really key part of it. Uh, and, I, and I suppose one of the other components it's worth preparing for, but not too well, would be, so what questions can I expect the customer to ask me? Again, you know, based on my experience. And I think the skill here is, even if you have thought about it and practiced it, not to make the response so glib and formulaic that it sounds like you're you know, you're just following a script, you know, pause, reflect, maybe ask um, for some clarity, um, make sure you've understood, but certainly anticipate what they may ask of you. I always uh, really in alignment with you on the questions like around that, because we always... In training, we would always develop a, a set list of, you know, that set list of questions that mm. uh, you can expect. Uh, and the challenge with that is people oftentimes developed a set list of answers to, like you said, yeah. a set list of answers to those questions when in actuality, it's how we really need to look at that is not like a, I had a couple of people describe it as like, oh, you're, you know, you're putting the ball up on a tee for me, right? I can knock that objection or that question out of the park. The challenge with that mentality is that you forget to ask the next two questions, yeah. right? For clarification of their yeah. purpose. Like, you know, they're similar, you yeah. know, the, the questions you can expect are similar, but if you don't dive deep with them on their experience for at least the next two questions, then your answer is not going to be for them. It's going to be for the, the other 95% of the people that 
exist in your experience. Yeah. You know, I, I just think if you're too formulaic about it, it's disrespectful and it's poor technique. Um, Absolutely. So I think we got through four. We've gone through well, the. Uh, oops, yeah. Sorry. So we're wrapping up now. Let's say. Yep. And, and and so we need to revisit what we set out and mutually agreed with the customer in the in the first place. Did we accomplish everything? Did they get what they uh, wanted out of it? Are there any uh, unresolved questions? Because if there are, let's try and deal with them now. And then again, in perfectly natural language, we can bring their attention back to the provisional next step that we all agreed to and it, again it feels it feels natural i think one of the reasons for not leaving next steps until the final step is you can run out of time you, you know uh, with the best will in the world maybe you, you haven't controlled the time as well as maybe you couldn't control the time as well as you'd like and you miss the chance to agree and establish the next steps yeah and who's going to do it and when and you know being as um unambiguous as possible about that and and again i think sometimes salespeople are not the best of them but sometimes you can see people who are not very confident being a bit timid about next steps and you know they emerge with something which isn't really a mutual agreement or tangible it's you know continue conversation or or, or something like that so that's where yeah. we need to wrap up effectively and then finally i think we need to look back after the conversation and just reflect briefly about did we achieve what we wanted to what did we learn you know what might we do differently and hopefully better uh, next time in a similar conversation so you kind of close the loop you do a certain amount of preparation you you put it into practice always realizing that that preparation simply is helping you to adapt for whatever comes your way um and then we see what we've learned so we can improve the exercise next time and and, and hopefully not just make it a personal thing but share those experiences with our colleagues so that we all benefit from the experience can i ask a question on next steps yeah so you did say sometimes you feel salespeople are timid in that what have you found to be some of the reasons why salespeople are timid because i've I found the same thing but like how how do you coach people and help them to get less timid well i think sometimes it happens because they're scared they'll get no as an answer so they choose something very bland but at the end of the day it's not really very helpful. Now, now, sometimes you want to give them a chance to practice that in a non-threatening environment. So that would be one of the particular aspects of conversational technique that I think it's really worth uh, role-playing. And uh, again, sort of pooling experience of, um, of colleagues. But I think we can all suffer from it. I'm sure I do as well. You know, the fear of asking a question for which we don't want the you know we we don't want to have an answer that we wouldn't like but if the next step isn't agreed with sufficient clarity it can all just you know wither away yeah i've almost thought that uh i've almost thought that the sales the sales industry needs some different language around this idea of next steps because it gets so 
it gets so watered down sometimes, but it's so important. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so incredibly important to find your way with your customer on the right path to help right. them, right? But but it gets so watered down, which which you get somebody at the end of a meeting, like you said, saying, okay, so what do you think the next steps are? Uh, thanks, yeah, Mr. I, customer. I, thanks, I, Mr. I, customer. I love meeting you. What are your next steps? You know, well, so, and it it just yeah. sometimes it waters it down and yeah. it's not well, mutual collaboration. Well, again, I think it's partly really thinking this through a little bit and preparing. Mm-hmm. So if the customer's, I don't know, reticent or not sure, then might we might want to say something along the lines of, well, you know, when we get to this stage with other customers like you who are clearly interested in learning more, what they've found is often the most useful thing to do next is to X. So, and by the way, this whole technique of not telling them or not even trying to dictate directly, but going slightly around the corner by saying other customers in your situation found or believed or said is a much more powerful and natural way of delivering you know, the message than sometimes being almost over-direct about it. Again, the other thing, if you do that, you're implying and communicating that this isn't the first time that you've worked with similar people in similar organizations on similar issues. They're not alone. And, you know, back to my observation in the core of the conversation that Mm -hmm. I think it's really important not just to think about what questions we want to ask it's also you know about avoiding the itch to pitch you know don't prescribe your so-called solution the moment a customer leaves even the faintest indication that they might have the issue or be interested i mean that's golden time you're much better off sticking with that issue and really getting under the covers of it. You know, why is that? How is it affecting you? How is it affecting others? How long have you suffered from it? How have you tried to deal with it in the past? Why is it important now? I mean, almost it's almost like the longer you can leave it between the first inkling of an issue and coming up with a solution, the more powerful your so-called solution will be because it'll be based on a foundation of a much deeper understanding of what's really important to them. I had a uh, a mentor, a great mentor and friend, uh, his name was Greg. He called this oil well. He called them oil wells. Mm-hmm. So it's because, you know, you get to the bottom, you, you, you hit oil, but he said, you just need to stay, not be afraid to stay in that moment. And that, that that oil well that particular drill and take it really deep yeah. and uh instead of he was actually one of the guys that, that trained me uh, significantly but it was he would put the sometimes if we were on a phone call he'd put it on mute and he'd say okay stay in the moment you know don't don't uh there's no pitching stay in the moment dig, no, dig for oil resist the itch to pitch stay curious stay genuinely curious yeah i think that's another characteristic of today's really good salespeople, they are genuinely curious. They they genuinely want to learn what's important rather than just execute on a, you know, a process. Yeah, I have found, and 
we started this conversation. I'll roll it all the way back to the beginning, but we defined, we talked about defining sales, right? And and mm. I'm fortunate that I get to talk to people like yourself, some of the best sales leaders and sales practitioners in, in the entire world. And one of the things that I'm finding when asked to define sales is that I haven't had a single person tell me that sales is about, like you said, uh, sales is, I haven't had a single person in that complex just say it's about the transaction. No. It's not about it's not about getting to yes. It's not about doing anything like that. It's not about you know necessarily winning. You know, it's about the journey and that curiosity and the learning. I've had people describe it as leadership, service. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, but none of them, none of the greatest that I've talked to, are about. The frequency and size of transaction. It's about the habits of leadership and 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 education and service that they have to be able to get to that end, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it never starts with that, and it's fascinated mm-hmm. me. I've I've absolutely loved the lessons. Well, you know, and this has become far more important now, not just in software but across whole tranches of industries. There's this movement from a outright initial purchase to consumption as a service, mm-hmm. um, you know, the days of, uh, I won't mention the brand, but, a you know, enterprise software salesperson cramming licenses in at the end of the quarter that subsequently don't actually get used and so on. It's really hard to sustain in a world where if you don't do the, if the customer doesn't get the outcomes they're looking for, they're not obliged to continue to engage with you. Yep. They can go elsewhere, and they should. Yeah, and that takes us all the way back to that initial part of that conversation as well. So uh, it was yep. around, I, and I do, I do believe in that. I do believe that there's a. It's a, it's an organizational responsibility, but it's led by it's led by the salesperson at that tipping point, understanding you know what do they actually want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then how do we then leverage that throughout our solution that they're actually, we know that, you know, our customer success people know what they want to achieve. Our product people know what yeah. they want to achieve. Our account managers know what they want to achieve. And if we're not learning that at the beginning and understand it all the way through, we lose. Yeah, we lose if we're still in an environment where we may have paid lip service to customer success, but they get engaged only after the order's taken when the salesperson chucks the order over the wall and wishes them good luck. Yep. Um, actually, we lose out in a world where traditional product management prevails rather than product managers thinking of themselves as somebody described it to me as they really need to think of themselves as being problem managers and you know not just adding new features and functions to a product, but making it easier for customers to get the results they're looking for from the offering. And sometimes that isn't adding even more functionality or another column of Harvey balls to your um, product spec sheet. It's a matter of engineering it for customer you know, productivity and usability and uh, and acceptance. Sometimes that means it's simplifying it. I would love to, and I actually, I need to, we're going to put in a, 
a rain check date, if you don't mind. And I want to, I would love to dive into that problem managers versus product managers and how, how that ties into sales, because I think that's a really important question, especially today. We're running out of time. Um, and, but I, can we set that? Can sure. you mind if we set that for some time in the future? Cause it's a, it's a massive discussion that we need to have uh, in in software, particular like I live in the software world, software yeah. and sales. That's what I do. So I see it there all the time. But I think it it's one of those that has to rise to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and I may invite somebody else. So we have a we have a wonderful uh, partner named Warwick uh, Warwick Brown. We, we recently did. He is in a specializes in target account management. So mm-hmm. that could be a really good conversation between the mm-hmm. three of us. That sounds cool. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation and. Uh, Happy to, you know, carry it on as we move towards maybe another variation on the theme of uh, the art and science of selling. Uh, by the way, uh, just very quickly, yeah, it struck me when I looked at your title. When I first started pro- proper selling, I was wholesaling motor accessories out the back of a beat-up van for two years, and then I, uh, I joined HP in the days when it was a fantastic company. And actually, I realized that effective selling is actually three things. It's a combination of art, science, and a certain amount of engineering. And what I mean by engineering is trying to create an environment where you deliver predictable results. That's not to say it's a you know fixed formula or process, but some of the disciplines of engineering, and I'm thinking particularly of the elimination of avoidable faults or errors, are also very relevant. To uh, the modern B two B selling, the modern B two B, absolutely. We got to take a rain check. We'll we'll dive into that one too. That would be absolutely fantastic. The critical thing there, right? I do that engineering process, and it's got to be iterative. Like you ha- absolutely. So there's that art, that's the science, and there's that iterative, iterative engineering process. Yeah. And it, it's not a rigid process. Yeah, it's not Edwards deeming and point you know six sigma or anything six sigma is impossible to apply i think in complex b2b sales but the idea of predicting and eliminating um avoidable error yeah is very powerful it's extremely powerful if you wouldn't mind telling people how to get a hold of you um after they listen to this because i'm sure they're going to want to sure so uh, my website is uh, at inflection point and that's spelled f i n f l e x i o n dash p o i n t dot com. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, if they simply email me at bob at inflection hyphen point dot com, I would very much look forward to hearing from them and and happy to respond. Wonderful. And I'll also say Bob is a recent or is a frequent contributor to uh, the Art and Science of Complex Sales blog. And we're thankful that he's on the podcast and we've really enjoyed hosting you, Bob. You have an amazing afternoon, your time, evening, and uh, I will talk to you very soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This podcast is sponsored by Membrane and our partners from around the globe. Here at Membrane, we believe that B2B sales is at a crossroads. Due to decades of quantity-based prospecting, information overload, and really a shift towards efficiency over service and pitching over leadership in sales, customers are saying enough is enough. They're tuning out average performers and choosing to take most of the buying journey 
on their own. This results in up and down sales results, forecasts that are all over the place, and salespeople that are half committed due to the fact that they're having poor results and they have an inability to truly connect with customers. We believe the road successful companies are taking to combat this is threefold. Number one, training to create leaders and executives across all areas of the team with strong habits and sales methodologies that bring value. Number two, technology. Technology that focuses and helps a salesperson succeed and reinforces great habits rather than wasting their time on filling out fields for reporting or wasting their time on spamming customers that have no interest in ever buying. Third, talent. And I'm talking about talent that's empowered and emboldened to make a difference for the customers and their companies. So where are you on that journey? Membrane and our network of partners across the globe are here to help and to elevate the sales profession. We streamline critical technology by combining CRM, training and enablement, and more into one seamless platform. We drive best-in-class methodologies through our partners. They provide the top thought leadership methodologies and resources from across the globe. And our collective efforts are dedicated to recruiting, training, coaching, and empowering, and measuring the habits of the top teams in the world to ensure success. Join us at Membrane.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening.